a lot of what I was when I started here, I'm not. And um, I'm very grateful that having a small independent restaurant gives you the latitude to change and still do what you do well, I suppose. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. By the end of the 1970s, almost 200,000 Italians had immigrated to Australia with dreams of building a new life. No one, not even those new Australians, could have predicted how much they'd change modern Australian culture. But over generations, Italian culture and food has become a major part of Australia's culinary identity. What's it like being part of that history? Mark Russo is the owner of Osteria di Russo and Russo in Enmore, Sydney. Mark, how are you? Yeah, I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. You've got a, a sort of tucked away secret little uh, establishment there. It's been churning away for, for a number of years now in Enmore that you opened with your dad. What was, what was that like, um, opening that up with, with your dad all those years ago? Um, well, I mean, I think I moved back to Sydney and I wanted to open the restaurant um, with him. And the idea was sort of to get closer to my Italian side of my family. Um, and it definitely did that. Um, <laughs> there was like, I mean, we definitely would have gone broke if it wasn't for my dad helping me. Um, at the same time, there was definitely a moment that um, we, you know, came as close as we've ever come in our lives to like punching each other so it was both really close and also you know maybe not maybe a little too close um but yeah now I feel like I'm really uniquely lucky to be able to sort of work alongside my dad and have like an intimate relationship with him um as an adult you know because I think a lot of people sort of you grow up and you do your own thing and you see your folks for lunch on a Sunday or something every now and again and that's kind of it and um yeah, my experience has not been that. Tell us about the the beginnings of uh, of Russo and Russo there on on Enmore Road. Mm. Um, well, I was living in Melbourne, and I tried to open a restaurant with an old boss of mine down there, and it sort of fell through. And I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. And my dad had um, he'd sold the like house he grew up in in Italy, and he had this money that he wasn't sure exactly what to do with and he said you know that he'd go halves with me in a restaurant if I moved back to Sydney and did it back home and that was kind of the beginnings of it I think for him it was about luring his family back to where he lives because everyone's moved to different places in the world and um uh yeah came back um slowly started looking at sites um I don't know, I guess I always thought that the Inner West was like underserviced for nice restaurants and I didn't quite understand why. Um, I lived in Newtown like all through uni and stuff like that, so it was sort of an area that I knew quite well and it kind of reminded me a bit of the northern suburbs of Melbourne where I'd been living for the last sort of 10 years, so it kind of, you know what I mean, that bit sort of fit. Um, yeah, we looked at a few places. We found that um, on King Street, you could pay, you know, between two and three thousand dollars a week for a place that had an exhaust fan and a kitchen. And on Enmore Road, you could pay eight hundred dollars a week. <laughs> so that sort of sealed our decision to go on Enmore Road. Um, yeah, and we found this place that was like between the shop that I'm at now and this other one across the road that became Schenken Kitchen. 
Um, and the one that I'm in now is, is like a pretty shabby Thai restaurant for quite a while. But before that, it was this thing called Fifi's Lebanese Cafe. And I think it had like a long sort of history as a family-owned place for quite a long time as that. Yeah. And um, yeah, we, we, we turned it back into that, I guess. Well, you certainly raised the bar for dining in that area and have been part of the wonderful evolution that we've seen along that road and in that in that area. Um, but take us back to when you were young, because your dad was in hospitality as well. What, what sort of role did food play in your family? Um, well, I mean, so it's a funny thing. Like, so my, when I was really young, my dad had a restaurant because um, he, he came here in the early 80s and he opened a restaurant the same year I was born um, called Russo in East Sydney. Um, and that would have been of the era for him where it was like, you know, you work six lunches and dinners a week, you're home one day. And um, so for us, like the, the, the food experience was probably that one day off that my dad had when, you know, he'd do a big show and song and dance and make a big feast and we'd have that sort of family time together. And otherwise, um, he was at work, you know what I mean? Um, and in the early 90s, he sort of sold that and he moved to a place in North Sydney that um, was a bit kind of like Machiavelli's, I suppose. Like it was like a sort of corporate lunch crowd, Monday to Friday thing. And suddenly he was sort of home a lot more. Um, and that was when, I suppose, um, I don't know, his approach to cooking and stuff would have been something that I would have been influenced by a whole lot more, if that makes sense. So, um, yeah, it was this sort of division of labor thing where mum would do all the cooking early on and then dad would be home on the weekend and, um, I don't know, his first lesson because he'd always, like, teach me how to cook something and it'd be like, what's the first thing we need? And the first thing we need is the bottle opener and to open a glass of wine and to get him a glass of wine and then we can begin cooking. You know, that was like my um, service um, background began, I suppose. Tell us a bit about the sort of food or feasts that you remember from, from when you were young. Um, well, we did this cool thing, which we still do. Um, so, like, in Italy, Christmas is Christmas Eve, if you know what I mean. Like, it's in the night time, um, and we've sort of taken that in Australia to be this kind of, like, orphan's Christmas, I suppose, because what would happen is my dad had run his restaurant, or now me, and we'd work our asses off up until the last day which will be somewhere near Christmas Eve. And then all the leftover food from the services and whatever will become this massive feast that we put on sort of for family, but also for staff that are from overseas that don't have a people around or, you know what I mean? And it would be like this this Christmas party sort of thing for work, but also for my family. Um, we've got this long tradition of um, fucking up the preparation of bakala in a different way every single year for the last 30 years of my life. So it's like, we'll try and soak this salt cod and it'll be too soaked so the texture will be wrong or it won't be soaked enough so it'll be too salty or it's like it's this running gag that we've had that um, it's something that you have to have as part of the Christmas Eve feast, um, I guess, in Naples. And we've just got this thing that <laughs> it has to go wrong a different way every single year or, you know, the tradition isn't upheld. When were your first steps into the industry and what was it that lured you for, into a career for? Um, well, I mean, I would have first started working for my... Oh, no, my first job in, in the kitchen was working at McDonald's, actually. It's like 14 and nine months and... Um, it felt like this kind of strange extension of um, school because a lot of the people that worked there went to my school and it was 
yeah, felt like high school, except we were all earning, you know, $6 an hour to be there or something. Um, but then, you know, my first sort of, and that was like working in the kitchen, I suppose. My first experience of like proper working in hospitality and working in service and in fine dining and all the rest was for my dad. Um, and I, like, cause he had this big place that would be open for lunches and then, um, we would do big sort of Italian weddings and stuff on the weekends. And so I'd work for those functions. So, um, yeah, I have this, my first sort of experience was yeah, probably being 16 and having like a white shirt and a bow tie and a little, um, apron and, um, you know, ferrying big platters of things down to people's tables. Remember I got really good at firing corks at other staff because it'd be like the kind of thing where it'd be like an unlimited drinks package with, you know, sparkling yellow glen or something like that and you know you get really good at aiming the cork and hitting your co-worker um yeah i kind of saw all of the ways that um uh, i don't know putting on those things he'd have these people that had come for dates and then come for uh, something or other and then they end up having their wedding and then they'd come 15 years later um to sort of celebrate their anniversary or something like that. And uh, I don't know, I've accidentally done exactly the same thing. You know, I've got clients that have had their first date with me and then we're a bit too small to have the wedding, but they have their like engagement drinks and then they're christening. And then, you know what I mean? You sort of see people's whole lives in terms of these little moments. Um, And it's pretty, I don't know, it's pretty unique that you get all the good bits of people's lives, I suppose. Tell us about sort of uh, your career leading up to um, Rousseau and Rousseau. And I know it's quite a period of time, but what what were the really sort of integral um, people and venues that you worked at as you built your career? Well, in Melbourne, I worked at um, Bar La Reina and I worked, um, that was probably maybe the most influential place I ever worked at. It's definitely up until then, you know, I'd worked in, like fine dining and I'd sort of seen food as either being it's done at this elevated level or it's, you know, not McDonald's, but you know what I mean? It's either fast food or it's whatever. And Balarinha sort of showed me that you could do really incredible food and drinks but not have the setup be so, like, posh, I suppose. Um, They also showed me a lot about maybe the sort of kitsch, aspects of style that come from being Italian or they were like, you know, a bit more Spanish and Portuguese, but still like embracing those sort of slightly kitsch bits of, you know, how, I don't know, the iconography of Catholicism can like blend in with how stuff looks and that's not necessarily uncool or, you know, like they really showed me this sort of aesthetic, which um, has definitely informed what I like these days. Um, and working for, I mean, so it was like three people that owned it, but Simon, who did the wine, was the person that, you know, taught me how to actually perfectly make a martini and how to talk about wine from varieties that I'd never heard of and communicate with customers where they were like super fancy CBD kind of business crowd through to, you know, drunks at 11 o'clock and, and still... I don't know, be honest about what you're serving or something. I don't know. He, he showed me a very uh, – I, I learned a lot from him. Um, and moving to Sydney before I opened Rousseau and Rousseau, moved to Sydney and I 
was, uh, I, I worked at the bridge room and, and, and that probably, that was, I mean, it was, first of all, when I opened Russo on Russo, I opened it with the sous chef and another chef from there and, you know, ended up being a manager and another person from the floor there. So I guess introducing me to people, that was hugely intru- like influential and it shaped the direction that my restaurant has gone since then. Um, but it also showed me because like Ross, the way he ran that place was like, it was all the fancy high end bits that I sort of thought I understood, but I'd never seen it from the perspective of like, it's a, still a small business and it's his and he decided on every element of it and worked. You know what I mean? That seeing, seeing how restaurants are one of the f- sort of few businesses, I think, where you can be the top of your game but you can also do it yourself. You don't necessarily need an enormous group and you can, I don't know, have a singular vision and have it seen to actually happen, you know? I don't think there's many other businesses that, I don't know, you can have that sort of control, I suppose. And that was really inspiring. Russo and Russo is a beautiful little restaurant hidden behind those curtains there. Um, tell us about, you know, building it and, and putting it together and, you know, was your is your vision what you ended up with when you first opened? Um, sort of. I mean, I think what ended up happening, I think I probably, I think I didn't expect that uh, the food would be as good as it was when we first opened. You know what I mean? So when we opened, like, you know, we had people booking from Gumtree ads that I had for front of house staff. Um you know, and then, you know, the first week they were open, Miffy Rigby, um, uh, you know, like every reviewer was sitting in the same, you know, seven table dining room um, <laughs> when we opened, you know what I mean? So it was like, I think I maybe underestimated how it would go like that. And, you know, had it not gone like that, probably couldn't have done two seatings and been able to have the sort of restaurant stay alive long enough to sort of become an institution. Um, but I, I definitely, um, I don't want to say it ended up being better than I thought it was going to be, but it definitely was something that was like, you know, somewhat fly by night in terms of how we put it all together. Like I did the fit out myself in two weeks whilst working at the bridge room at night, waking up at five o'clock in the morning and, you know, you know, shouting at you know, carpenters and whatever. And then somehow that all came together and made a space that people really liked. And, um, you know, I did a few pop-ups with different chefs to sort of try and find someone that I had a good fit with, but it ended up being Jason cooking just the perfect Parmigiano-Reggiano risotto with balsamic for my dad that just like my dad, like held the table it was so good and you know what I mean so a lot of the things about it were a little bit of sort of using the chance occurrences that happened to mine and and the restaurant's advantage I suppose tell us a little bit about your dad's influence in in those days in that sort of first period of time and and in building the restaurant that you wanted to build together Uh, well it's funny we used to joke about it because it's called Russo and Russo but he, I mean, he was super helpful um, getting it set up. Like, um, I didn't know how to negotiate for a lease, but he managed to negotiate for one that um, meant that we'd sort of fitted it out before we'd even agreed on all of the details. And getting that sort of head start was super important. 
he was the genius that recognised that if he put a clause in saying that um, he wanted right of first refusal if the owner wanted to sell the building, and that's meant... <laughs> this meant sort of a, a big deal for, for how financially the restaurant's able to continue and, and do well and all the rest. Um, his sort of reminding, because I was like 29 when I opened here and like, you know, didn't really have a whole lot of management experience. I just had lots of ideas. And his kind of, I don't want to say shitting on my ideas, but certainly giving me a dose of reality from time to time um, in the opening is what made it open with, I guess, a tiny budget, but with enough money to sort of get us through to some period of stability. You know what I mean? So that opening, his influence was crucial. There's no way we could have gotten it going. The next period, I think, because it did sort of very well um, in terms of reviews and in terms of business and all those sorts of things, he sort of, we joked that it was Russo or Russo because he'd had his own place and he'd sort of come every now and again if, you know, I needed an early night or whatever, but he sort of didn't have a great deal of involvement during that period. Um, and then he sold his restaurant and he retired. And for, you know, a hospitality guy that's worked since he was 13 or something, retirement means three nights a week on the floor <laughs> at my place. Um, and he goes to the markets for us every week and he... Um, so I guess after the period maybe of, of Jason's sort of era here, he um, he's had a lot more to do with the place and I guess it's become more of a, you know, neighbourhood institution, you know? So I, I think that, that his influence... Um, Perhaps when I first opened, I slightly rejected. And, and as time's gone on, I've seen the sort of wisdom in his way of operating and, and sort of the, I don't know, having these relationships with clients that end up becoming, yeah, first date, wedding, christening. You know what I mean? That 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 thing that, that uh, I think it's a old school Italian hospitality sort of approach and that sort of slowly but surely sort of seeped into what we are and, and, and made us what we are now. A bit earlier, you mentioned the idea of opening Rousseau and Rousseau. Part of it was you delving into your Italian heritage and, and knowing more about it. T take us on that journey a bit. Like what, what have you discovered and, and what is the, the heritage of um, within your family? Well, I mean, uh, I guess the, the, the thing I maybe alluded to a little bit was that like growing up, my dad was always at work, so I guess my closeness is with my mum and my mum's side of the family. My Italian's not very good, um, and I'm not super close with my family in Napoli because, A, my Italian isn't very good, but also because I guess I didn't put that much effort in growing up, you know? Maybe there's an element of, like, you know, being the only wog kid at high school or something and feeling a bit awkward about that or something, and so... Um, that all slowly changed um, as I realized that the, you know, weird foods we ate were actually <laughs> the good ones to eat and the, the, the sort of odd maybe cultural things that we did, like, you know, kissing family members and stuff was actually like a tradition that's much nicer and healthier than 
maybe other ones that I thought <laughs> I needed to emulate. You know what I mean? So sort of um, that 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 thing. Um, um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I guess that's I, I haven't had some massive revelation that like I you know now I understand um, my Italian side in a way that I didn't before. But instead, I've had this opportunity, I suppose, to sort of put more effort into my relationship with my family um, at an age where maybe other people start their own families and, yeah, have, have a bit to do with them, but not as much. You know what I mean? I had my dad come down and visit me. Mum and dad came down and visit me when I was in Melbourne. And, like, I hadn't seen them in 18 months or something. And um, in that space of time, my dad had gotten like pre-diabetes or something. He'd gone on some crazy diet to try and, you know, not have it turn into full-blown diabetes. But it was literally I blinked and it went from my dad being, I don't know, my dad to being an old man. And, yeah, I feel like I was really lucky with opening this restaurant that I got to move back home and sort of be around them during that time because... I don't know. I've got my manager at the moment, Roberto. His um, he's just found out his dad's got lung cancer, and his cancer's spread to like other parts of his body. And he's an expat. He's not from Naples anymore. He's been in Australia for ten years. Um, and he has this horrible decision where he's like, "Do I go now and see him while he's well, or then I have to go back when he dies, or do I go back when he's a bit more sick so I can be there for the family?" Or those horrible decisions are ones that I very fortunately sort of got to avoid. And it's, you know, because of this weird idea to open a restaurant and move back to my hometown and, and try and, you know, kind of emulate what my dad did a little bit. The, the wine offering and, um, and your knack of hospitality on the floor is a real feature of, of what you do there. What's the interest that you have in wine and the approach that you have with it? Well... I feel like, I mean, I feel like um, something that I've done from the very beginning was sort of, I guess, to create some, I don't know, like some limitations on what we can have because the world of wine is so unbelievably vast that it can be really easy to be overwhelmed with how many choices and how many types and how many different styles and how many different whatevers. But what's most interesting for me um, is that you can sort of choose to work with other people that are like you, you know, tiny family-owned businesses. They do it a particular way, even if it's not necessarily to everyone's taste. If you like it, that's great. That kind of – that that ability to select for other like-minded people I think has been how I've made a lot of my decisions, you know. So I've worked with the same producers because I really like their approach to stuff um, and, you know, I'll choose my favourite wines of theirs but, like, it's kind of maybe it's a bit relationship-based um, and that's definitely the same way that I sort of approach the service of that stuff when I'm on the floor or when I'm discussing it with other staff, you know. Wine's got this really unique thing where it can sort of encompass geography and history and flavour and science and, like, it's like a million different things that can all be at the same time and I think, the, the, like, the personal bits of it are the things that are the most interesting and 
so yeah, I try and make sure that the wines that I have represent some sort of personal story where I can. You know? It's it's really become a, a neighbourhood institution, but it's also you know one of the best dining experiences you can have in in Sydney, and really punches above its weight. What <laughs> tell us a bit about the restaurant and the offering and the food and and sort of you know what what you're doing. Well, um, I guess what we do, I suppose, is we have a like an outsider's approach to Italian. So. The idea has been never to try and make it be authentic Italian food, whatever that means, because I think, you know, if you want Vitello Tonato to taste exactly right, you've got to have one where it comes from, you know? And so our approach has always been from the beginning to sort of go, okay, well, we're we're all immigrants, so we want to do immigrant Italian. We want to do Italian that's inspired by the recipes and the ideas and the approach to flavors, but we want to use local native ingredients. And like we've been doing that for 10 years. Um, and uh, I think, I don't know that we're necessarily influential on what everyone else has done, but it's definitely become something that has become more um, widely appreciated, I want to say. There's definitely this period early on where we have like a white curtained candle lit restaurant on a somewhat dingy street of Sydney and sort of had to convince people that there was a reason why we didn't have, you know, uh, I don't know, why we didn't do pizza, for example, or you know what I mean? Like that that sort of thing. Um, but so, yeah, I guess the approach has always been to try and, and, and do that, do a sort of an inauthentic approach to Italian. Um, and, you know, we do it as lots of little plates of things to share so that people get to try lots of stuff. We try and do it so that we can have really carefully plated, beautiful dishes, but they're done in a way that um, isn't stuffy and it's, um, to be honest, a little bit sloppy and wild and noisy and all of those sorts of things, which I think is my favoured way to sort of enjoy the best things in life, you know. Um, the space itself is like small and intimate and cosy and candlelit. It's got my family photos everywhere and um, uh, that is maybe a little bit disarming for people. It definitely, like, I don't know, it, it, people feel relaxed even if there's three different Jesus portraits staring at them. And, um, and, and yeah, often that gets them talking about their families and stuff like that. And um, I think that's kind of what food's about. What surprised you about uh, running this restaurant? Well, <laughs> I suppose... Um, 10 years on, I had this idea that it was something that was like a fun, exciting thing for me to start. Um, but I never really, I never really thought about what would come next. You know what I mean? And um, what surprised me is how much I get out of being part of this tiny area and community and group of people. I didn't think that was going to be the sort of the biggest payoff for me, but it's... Um, <laughs> You, you become a, a part of the scenery is the wrong word because that makes it sound like it's not important. But you know what I mean? You're, you're part of the, the, the geography. And, um, and I really love that feeling because I feel like um, particularly during the era of COVID and all the rest, um, when there was like, you know, people coming in and I was the only face that they saw that wasn't, 
the people they live in their house with or their workmates on Zoom or something like that. It really felt like we were this sort of really integral part of the way that people live and interact with one another. And, yeah, that, that, that I think has increasingly become this thing that I'm I feel really grateful that I'm able to be or be a part of you know it definitely wasn't what I thought <laughs> you've enriched so many people's lives with this uh, little restaurant in Enmore um, what impact has it had on you over the last decade hmm. well I mean definitely uh, definitely when I opened I had this like burning desire to like you know, largely ego-driven. It was about, like, going to do something massive and be wildly successful and famous and all of those sorts of things. I had this sort of, like, burning urge to create something, you know? Um, yeah, well, so I've had that, like, sort of wild proving myself sort of period that seems like some sort of perverse, like, extended adolescence. And then that period sort of passed and um, I started to really enjoy the connections that I have with people, both staff and customers. I started, instead of partying and staying really late, I, you know, started surfing and started being <laughs> up early and spending every weekend I can away with my family camping and um, enjoying the finest of wines, um, <laughs> you know, at the back of my camper van and, um you know, getting my daughter to smell my wine and tell me what she can smell and, uh, yeah, people that were customers have become friends and staff members that I thought were assholes have become good mates. And, you know what I mean? Like all of those, like a, a lot of what I was when I started here, I'm not. And um, I'm very grateful that having a small independent restaurant gives you the latitude to change and still do what you do well, I suppose. Well, Mark, uh, you've had an amazing impact on so many people, including myself, who uh, have, has had many great meals at your restaurant. It's been an absolute honour to have you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear your story. Please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me, Huckle. It was great to chat with you and, um, yeah, just really appreciate it. Thanks very much. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.